3: Part one, still fucking at it. The person who sat at the center of Rebecca was undeniably its determined producer, Ben Sprecker. As the saga unfolded, he was positioned at the forefront of this media onslaught. During that time, I was an editor covering the story where my team and I got regular phone calls, not from a publicist, but from Sprecher hoping to position himself and his show in a very specific light. It's not often that I'd hear from a producer of a show. Maybe an actor seeking publicity, but the producer? Not usually. That's what publicists are for. Of course, Sprecher got screwed by his, so I guess you can't blame the guy. Photos of Sprecker looking hardened and sullen often accompanied many of the stories of Rebecca post-collapse. And throughout these interviews, Sprecker was no doubt casting himself in the role of victim. In the New York Times, in an article titled, Rebecca Producer Explains How Trust Betrayed His Dream, there was Sprecker, dressed in a navy pinstripe suit and silk tie glaring angrily at the camera. Do I feel like I was duped? He said, I was duped. I was raped. Later, in a Vanity Fair piece, he stood perched on a half built set that was to be the grand masterpiece of his Broadway triumph. Wearing a similar scowl in an interview full of sobbing, he proclaimed to journalist David Camp I cannot tell you how much I believe in this musical. I am still fucking at it. What Sprecher doesn't mention in any of these articles and interviews around that time is the many people under his employ that were left jobless. The actors, stagehands, musicians, all who turned down other gigs to be available for Rebecca. Some did work they weren't paid for. Here again is music director Kevin Stites, actress Sierra Bogus, and stage manager Trip Phillips.
4: Everybody had quit a job or didn't take a job. Because of it, the actors got two weeks of pay and myself and and, uh, Nick Archer and Greg Jarrett, my assistant associate, were promised a week. Uh, The actors got their money and I'm still waiting for my week's pay. (laughs) We didn't go into rehearsal, official rehearsal. Michael and Grazie and I worked on it in her apartment in New York for a couple weeks before finally it just appeared that this was never, ever going to happen. But we kept working. We were sort of told to, and we just said, well, if this is going to go again, let's just keep doing our job.
2: These actors, these musicians, these crew, all these people who were promised these jobs, who have contracts for these jobs, they start in a matter of days, and then you pull the plug. And it's, you knew. That you had to have known that you didn't have the money or whatever this thing is, but you went ahead and played, you know, Monopoly or whatever with people's lives. I mean, people had left other shows in order to do this new musical. And I just want to stress how devastating that was on a level of these are humans with lives that had given up a lot in order to do this and had been promised this money this show and that was really really devastating for people so to take responsibility is a really good thing if if you were the person that was in charge of this instead of denying it or trying to place the blame or something i think to take responsibility for the fact that you did make mistakes. And if you are going to be a producer, or an executive producer especially, then you have to understand that that is what you're taking on.
5: I just was in a state of shock and complete astonishment that at this point, literally 72 hours, whatever it was, even less than that, before the first rehearsal, they were once again pulling the plug and, and disrupting everyone's lives and professional schedules and livelihood. I personally ended up turning down uh, two Broadway shows that year f- for the two times that Rebecca did not go, and that was very difficult for me to um, to get past.
3: So, who is Ben Sprecker? This guy rolled up in all this mess. <laughs>
4: David Camp, a contributing editor at Vanity Fair magazine. Ben seemed like a schlumpy guy with a dream. Uh, I mean he'd be played by a character actor in the movie version of this. He was really emotional and and really just wanted to make a good show and I'm a good guy. He kept insisting what a good guy he is. And there was something kind of uh, Broadway Danny Rose about the sort of shabbiness of The Office. It was like you take the elevator to the fourth floor, but his office is on the fifth floor. So then you have to go up some back staircase where you're stooping a little, and then you finally find this office, which is kind of eccentric with sloped roof, sloped ceilings because it's the top floor of some little theater district office. So everything about it seemed kind of cinematic.
3: Often alongside Sprecher in these interviews was his attorney, Ron Russo, a longtime criminal defense attorney Ron is a tall man with a salt and pepper beard and charming Brooklyn accent. When I met with him in his downtown Manhattan office, cramped with books and papers, an imposing solid wood desk, and the odd Grecian bust here and there, he went on about researching me before meeting me. How he was very impressed with me, even stopping his receptionist to tell her how accomplished a young lady I was.
4: Ron is a smart, slick dude, who has all the polish and self-possession that Ben Sprecker doesn't have. Ben Sprecker is someone who lets his emotions get the better of him. He often uh, wept when speaking to me, whereas Ron Russo is just smooth and knows how to hit those talking points on point.
3: Once it was clear that the show was not gonna go on anytime soon, Ben was on a warpath via the media. He was determined, maybe even blinded, to reposition Rebecca and the insanity that ensued as just a pit stop on the way to his eventual triumph. He had the rights to the show for just a short amount of time. He had half the funding, much of it already spent, and a deadline to get the show up. Or depending on the agreements he had with his remaining investors, he'd have to give them their money back. So. He and Russo used the media to try and reshape the narrative of him as just a naive upstart in way over his head to a man on a mission to save the day on a beleaguered musical. Sprecker was going to use the old adage, any press is good press. He told the press in 2013 that the show was, quote, even more valuable than it was six months ago because of all the hoopla. Part two, the good old days. To understand Sprecker, you need to go back to 1980s, 1990s New York City. That time proved to be a very fruitful one for the commercial theater. On Broadway, big, dramatic musicals like Cats, Les Miserables, and Grand Hotel became mega-hits, running for years and bringing in millions of dollars to Broadway coffers. Off-Broadway was cooking, too. Defined as theaters with 100 to 499 seats, Off-Broadway was divided into two worlds. nonprofit theaters like Roundabout, Vineyard, Playwrights Horizons, and the Public Theater and independent commercial houses like Downtown's Minetta Lane and Cherry Lane and the West Side Theater in Midtown. Together, these two forces became the creative engine that drove theater in New York City at that time. New off-Broadway houses were popping up all over New York City during this time to keep up with the demand. Off-Broadway became home to serious plays with numerous Pulitzer Prizes for drama given to shows who originated there. Still, Musicals like Little Shop of Horrors and Nonsense became must-sees, running for years. Playwrights like Sam Shepard and David Mamet became off-Broadway legends and often premiered some of their biggest works on off-Broadway stages. Terrence McNally and Larry Kramer were doing fierce activism through art off-Broadway. At the center of the surge was a lady named Lucille Lortel, regarded as the queen of off-Broadway. Lortel was an actress in the 20s and 30s before marrying the very wealthy industrialist Louis Schweitzer. Lortel took her newfound mega wealth and began nurturing her love of the theater by producing underappreciated new playwrights both in the city and at her grand compound in Connecticut. Her namesake theater became ground zero for the term off Broadway. For many years, the names Ben Sprecher and Lucille Lortel were inextricably linked. Lortel, who passed in 1999, is still a household name to most New York theatergoers. Her name still adorns the Lucille Lortel Theater, a 24th wedding anniversary gift from Schweitzer. The theater sits in the heart of the West Village on a bustling Christopher Street. Her namesake is also a top prize earned by the best of off-Broadway performances. And her foundation, the recipient of her fortune after her death, has doled out millions to worthy theater companies and creators across the country. This closeness to the deep pockets and cultural heft of Lortel made Sprecker a formidable force in the 80s, 90s New York theater scene. He was atop the off-Broadway food chain, a big commercial success in those days. It gave him an air of confidence some say arrogance, that made him the kind of guy you either loved or didn't. As legendary general manager Albert Poland wrote in his seminal book, Stages, about first meeting Sprecker, His voice was not warm. It had a hard edge I had never heard in our community. In just those few seconds, I recognized in him an adversary and a harbinger of change for Off-Broadway, Others felt an immediate kinship with the hard-nosed, hard-driven Sprecher.
6: I'm Julian Schlossberg, and I'm a producer. But I met Ben, and he was very gracious and showed us around the theater of the variety arts and did something that I was very touched by, which, you know, sometimes these things happen in your life that, even though it's almost 30 years ago, you don't forget. I said, so would you be kind enough to tell me what the problem I might face if I take the theater, because I'm leaning towards it. He said, the only problem is that in some cases, especially in the balcony, it's tough sometimes to see the stage. You might have to give discounts for those seats. You don't want to have people complaining. He could have said, I can't think of any. He didn't have to. He was very, he he came right forward about it. I never had a problem. In in fact, I did as many plays I co-produced with him as I did Just being his, he being my landlord. And he was just tops all the time. He has a lot of great strengths as a person.
3: Some took a more sinister take on Sprecher, like the notoriously acid tongued New York Post columnist Michael Riedel. Anyone in the theater knows if you fall out of favor with Riedel, you better watch out, as you can hear in a moment.
5: Ben Sprecher was always somebody who uh, you felt uh, there was a sleaziness to him. When I really got to know Ben, he he used to run the Lucille Lortel Foundation. Lucille Lortel was a very, very, very rich woman who owned the uh, Théâtre de Lys and began the Lucille Lortel Theatre down on Christopher Street in the West Village where I live. And then there was a foundation, and I always heard, you know, a little rumbling that Sprecker was like, "This is his piggy bank." Lucille's old; she trusts Ben; she gives him money; he runs it, and no one was ever minding what he did there. So there was always a sense, if you were in the know back then, that Ben Sprecker, you know, he got his—he he hooked his fish, and that was Lucille Ortel. And he lived on that for a long time. And then Ben stepped up when Lucille died and he was in control of the foundation. God, I would love to get the records of where where some of that money went.
3: As I said, loved him or didn't.
1: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woo a hand clapper, a high-fiver?
0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Sprecker was nothing if not incredibly ambitious. While working with Lortel, he refurbished the old Promenade Theater on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and made it a state-of-the-art center of this booming commercial, off-Broadway golden era. Its first show post-Sprecher Rehab was the New York premiere of David Rabe's Hurley Burly, directed by the one and only Mike Nichols. It starred William Hurt, Judith Ivey, Harvey Keitel, Christopher Walken, and a young Cynthia Nixon. After this auspicious start, the promenade would house big-named New York premieres like Sam Shepard's A Lie of the Mind, Neil LeBute's The Shape of Things, Edward Albee's Three Tall Women, and Terrence McNally's The Lisbon Triviata. Nathan Lane, Paul Rudd, Steve Martin, Holland Taylor, Donna Murphy, Macaulay Culkin, and Rachel Weiss all had their names on the marquee there during the 20-odd years that Sprecher ran the theater. The Promenade was so successful that at one time, Sprecher bounced around the idea of taking over the West Side Playhouse in his native L.A. and calling it the Promenade Theater Los Angeles. There were talks of also opening up similar-sized commercial theaters' models on the promenade in other cities, too. Although, none of that materialized. The West Side eventually became the Geffen Theater, named for media mogul and billionaire David Geffen. After his hit with the promenade, Sprecker took over an old theater on East 14th Street that had a sketchy past, playing B- and C-grade movies and softcore pornos. Sprecker turned it into the Variety Arts Theater and it joined others in the Union Square area looking to revive downtown into the bustling theater destination it once was. New York Theater and Broadway itself grew from the Union Square area before moving more north, so it wasn't outlandish to think that that area was somewhat hollowed ground for the performing arts. Mega producer Daryl Roth opened her namesake theater there around the same time it's fashioned out of a former bank and it still stands grandly facing the east side of Union Square Park. So Sprecker had three really big jobs. He owned two theaters and still stayed on to manage the Lortel. If you were operating Off-Broadway in those days and you didn't sit on the good side of Ben Sprecher, you likely weren't going to get very far. Lots of people I spoke to referred to him as a great champion of commercial Off-Broadway. But by the late 90s, early 2000s, the commercial theater model had changed. Tastes had changed. Shows like Rent, Avenue Q, and Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk had been smash hits off Broadway and then quickly moved to Broadway. Theater in general started to become a lot more expensive to put on and thus people's downtown dollar didn't get them what they used to. In the 80s, you could see the original production of Little Shop for as little as seven bucks. Steel Magnolias would cost you $27. Charles Bush's campy hit, The Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, had people flocking to Greenwich Village for five years with a top ticket price of $28. When Lucia Lortel died, the century was closing and along with her went the big heyday of commercial off-Broadway. Soon after her death, Sprecker left the Lortel to focus on his own theaters. It was getting increasingly difficult to be successful sticking to just Off-Broadway. In 2004, the variety arts shuttered with no hits to its name. Two years later, he shut down the promenade too. But he wouldn't leave Off-Broadway altogether until he opened up the Little Schubert Theater. And as Sprecher had learned before with Lucia Lortel, his star would rise with his proximity to greatness. In this case, the greatness was one of Broadway's most towering figures, Gerald Schoenfeld of the Schubert Organization. Here again is Sprecher's colleague, Peter Bodio.
0: Ben had the total trust of the Schubert Organization. He considered the late Jerry Schoenfeld to be a mentor of his. Ben had come to the Schubert's with the idea of building the Little Schubert Theater so they would have an off-Broadway base in Midtown.
3: It was the Schubert's first and only off-Broadway endeavor. Convinced that having a state-of-the-art off-Broadway theater, whose space, technology, and proximity to Broadway was the next wave, Sprecker convinced the Schubert's to throw down $13 million to build the theater. It opened with a Tommy Toon review, which ran just a few weeks. In the 20 years since opening the theater, it's been played by less than 20 productions, none lasting more than a few months. It's since been renamed Stage 42 and had its first real hit just before the 2020 pandemic with Joel Gray's Yiddish version of Fiddler on the Roof. Once again, Michael Riedel.
5: Jerry Schoenfeld on the idea when Off-Broadway was really exploding in the early 90s that the Schubert's should open the Little Schubert Theater there on West 42nd Street. And the Schubert's opened that theater there on West 42nd Street. That has never had a hit in its life down there. But Ben got Jerry to do it. I was always suspicious of Ben.
3: It seemed that Ben's ability to bet on winners was fading. After he opened The Little Schubert, the off-Broadway commercial model collapsed. The cost of producing an off-Broadway show just kept on growing, while the potential to make money didn't. You could only have so many seats in an off-Broadway theater and you could only charge so much. Producers started thinking, if I'm already spending so much money on a show, why don't I just raise a little more and seek a Broadway house where the profile and the profit is higher? This seemed to be Ben's thinking, too. So after becoming kind of an off-Broadway heir apparent to Lortel, he turned his sights on Broadway.
0: Ben had considerable experience. He had never produced a major Broadway musical. That is true. But to sort of represent him as this little upstart off-Broadway guy is really unfair. Ben was a lead producer On six major Broadway plays, plus he had been a a lead producer on uh, the national tour of a new musical adaptation of Little House on the Prairie, which first played at the Guthrie and then where it, it broke numerous records. He had also been a lead producer on a musical sequel to the musical Annie called Annie Warbucks, which they had hoped to bring to Broadway but a major investor dropped out.
3: Ben's success on Broadway was debatable. He produced six Broadway plays. Two made their money back. Some were limited engagements, and seven of them closed within the same year that they opened. Only one was an original work. None of them were musicals. So there is a case to be made that Ben was out of his league with Broadway. But the moment he saw Rebecca... He was in and he went out and went out big for Rebecca. Once again, his connection to the Schuberts put him in a great position to claim a highly sought after theater and an investment of a half a million dollars.
5: The Schuberts have always been loyal to people who have uh, done things for them. Loyal, probably, to a fault in Ben's case. And Ben had a way of wrapping. People around his finger of being kind of charming, kind of ideas. I'm going to give you a big, big show. And I've done this for you. I've done that for you. We've all been in this together for a long time. And I think he just convinced the Schuberts that he was going to deliver the big score. And I think the Schuberts felt a kind of loyalty to him. They've done business with him before. You know, uh, all four of my shows came to the Schubert organization that uh, Ben had produced here and there. And th- the, the, the real thing was that Ben had a connection to Jerry Schoenfeld, and I love Jerry, but Jerry had a blind spot. He needed flattery, and Ben knew how to flatter him. And I think when Jerry died in 2004, there was still a kind of hangover that, you know, Jerry liked Ben. So we have to take care of Ben. I thought that Ben had misunderstood the marketplace. That whole idea of these big operatic kind of shows that, that Andrew Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh did, their era had passed. If you think about it, the last big Andrew Lloyd Webber show, operatic in its nature, was Sunset Boulevard, and it was ultimately a failure. It had the biggest advance of all time, and yet it collapsed. And after Sunset Boulevard, you had Rent.
3: Ah, Rent. You can't mention contemporary theater without making a pit stop at Rent, the seminal modern rock musical, the forerunner to hits like Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, and The Book of Mormon. There was Rent, and everything after. Did Rebecca really have a place in the new world that Rent created?
5: So you have a new generation of people coming along. The generation of Cameron Mackintosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber, that really, I have to say, save Broadway in the 80s, their time was up. And suddenly there was an energy and a youthfulness to Broadway with Rent. And sad to say, Jonathan Larson died before Rent opened, so he could not bring that. But people like Bobby Lopez, And Passing and Paul, uh, that's the show that they responded to. So things were changing. Ben could never understand that. So Ben was still locked into this idea of, if we take a big, old-fashioned book, Rebecca, which is a great novel, no question about it, but if we do this big, old-fashioned, operatic kind of thing like Les Miserables, it's going to work. And he failed to see that his art form changed underneath
3: him. Rebecca turned out to be more than just a failed musical. It marked the end of Ben Sprecker's career, but not just because it failed. Following Mark Houghton's scam and Mark Thibodeau's betrayal, Sprecker spent the next six years entangled in lawsuits and appeals. It wasn't until 2019, after 471 legal filings, that Sprecher would put a pin in the final suit pertaining to Rebecca. He was on his way to putting the whole thing behind him. He was trying to start his career anew. After getting a diploma from the Institute of Culinary Education, Sprecher tried to open up a new restaurant. In a pitch to a new crop of investors, Sprecker was aiming to reinvent Rumpelmeyer's, a classic New York restaurant just off Central Park. Here's his pitch.
6: A visit to Rumpelmeyer's Rockefeller Center will always be a memorable, Instagrammable occasion.
3: The Rumpelmeyer's thing didn't take off. Sprecker's application for the trademark was rejected. It already belonged to someone else, but none of this was to be. Next time on Burnt.
4: It, it's still to this day, years later, confuses me how a CPA could be uh, kind of casual about that sort of thing.
2: Just when you thought that it couldn't get any more evil, that's what also has been going on.
0: You have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call.
3: Burnt is a production of Broadway Podcast Network and me, Blake Ross. Reported and written by Blake Ross, edited by Alan Seals, Supervising producers are Brittany Bigelow and Dori Bernstein. Special thanks to Philip Baroff. For sources and more information on the Rebecca scandal, visit bpn.fm slash Burt.
0: The views and opinions
1: expressed by the people appearing in the podcast are their own. And their appearance in the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent and do not necessarily reflect the views of
6: the Broadway Podcast Network and its officers, directors, owners, employees and agents.